0: ask you to turn to Job chapter 36. You followed our nine or ten previous messages as I've tried to survey the highlights of the book of Job. I told you by no means were we going chapter by chapter through this whole rather complex and lengthy book. You might think that it is you who's been absent a few weeks rather than me when I jumped from chapter 19 last time to chapter 36, that seems like a huge leap. But what we're doing is passing by much dialogue between Job's three so-called friends who didn't turn out to be very friendly and uh, moving now towards the latter development when a new man comes into the picture named Elihu. And I'm going to only read parts of what Elihu has to say in chapters 36 and 37. By the way, I'm, I'm reading for a change from the New International Version today, a version that we used for a long time in ministry, and I won't go into all the reasons why we don't use it anymore, but just mainly because the version of it since 2011, we think, is a not totally faithful translation anymore. But the pre-2011 NIV is still excellent, and I think it makes some things clearer Then perhaps the ESV does. At least that's my personal judgment. So I'm reading the first 16 verses of Job 36, and then I'll switch and read the last part of chapter 37. Listen to God's word. Elihu continued, "'Bear with me a little longer, and I will show you that there is more to be said in God's behalf. I get my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe justice to my Maker.'" Be assured that my words are not false. One perfect in knowledge is with you. God is mighty, but does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if... Men are bound in chains and held fast by cords of affliction. He tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly, and he makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent of their evil. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. The godless in heart harbor resentment. Even when he fetters them, they do not cry for help. They die in their youth among male prostitutes of the shrines. But those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place free from restriction to the comfort of your table, laden with choice food. Now I'll jump over to chapter 37. And we pick up at verse 14 of 37. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised those wonders of "'Him who is perfect in knowledge, "'you who swelter in your clothes "'when the land lies hushed under the south wind, "'can you join him in spreading out the skies "'hard as a mirror of cast bronze? "'Tell us what we should say to him. "'We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. "'Should he be told that I want to speak?' Would any man ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness, he does not oppress. Therefore men revere him, nor does he not have regard for all the wise in heart. Father, help us to hear this ancient word and marvel before you and bow in worship and obedience. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of you know that on Wednesday last week we had an unusual weather event with a localized rainstorm that passed through the county. It's interesting these days if you're watching the local news TV news to be able to see Doppler radar and how it portrays these storms in vivid color. There was a band of bright dark red that just parked itself in East Lampeter Township over near the outlets and many of you have Stories to tell of how surprised you were of trying to get home from work or run some errand and all of a sudden a familiar local street was gushing with water and you were turned back and unable to go through. I was watching Channel 8 TV and it was very evident that they were scrambling to reinvent their broadcast for an event they hadn't counted on. They had to obviously drop stories and put their full attention on something they didn't expect just minutes before to be happening. And I thought to myself, with all of our radar and technology where we can track the storms, we still cannot predict the storms completely, nor certainly can we control the storm. We are still helpless often before the creation of God and its peculiar powers and phenomena. Numerous times in the Bible, God used stunning displays of things that he did in the natural world and called attention to them to impress some kind of spiritual message. We could raise many uh, examples of that. The opening of the Red Sea, or I think of Genesis 15, when the Lord led Abraham out into the night. Imagine a starry sky unpolluted by city lights of today and The Lord said, Abram, look at the skies, count the stars. And when you have counted them, be awed by the promise I'm making to you as an elderly couple, that your descendants will be greater than all of these. God uses his natural creation, certainly, to humble us, to draw us to himself and respect the power that he still has. At the end of the day, there's few things that so forcefully impress us with God's greatness and his rule as the natural world itself. Not only the great and powerful things like storms, but even the tiny things that you study under a microscope and see how God is at work. And so these things are used as we draw near the end of Job to make Job realize there's a creator, a creator of intricate design and power and knowledge and even love, very much in control of the sufferings that Job and others might experience. Job 32 to 37 give us a six-chapter section of this book that is unique because it is all one person speaking, And we have not heard from this person, nor even heard of this person, before his very brief introduction that I'll mention in a minute at the beginning of chapter 32. It is a young man named Elihu. He was not among those original friends introduced, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, who have dominated the book with their rather tiresome and endlessly repetitive speeches, which, basically boiled down to blaming Job to being somehow responsible for his own suffering. Those guys are done. They're silent. We won't hear another word from them in the rest of the book, although we will hear judgment upon them spoken by God in the very last chapter. But here's Elihu, separate from these people, who gives a It looks like a continuous address, chapters 32 through 37. It actually shows several pauses where you think uh, perhaps Elihu was waiting for somebody to give him a rebuttal, but nobody did. And in this, one of the main themes is Elihu saying things like 37 too, listen to the thunder of God's voice. He's trying to say that God by his spirit is still speaking both in nature and through the wise and humble godly person who will hear him. He's not simply a God of argument and logic and judgmentalism like the other three have implied he is. Now as I've brought to you nine different times a look at this book and we've gone through chapter 19, I have especially emphasized the Things said by Job, who was called, you remember, in the beginning, a blameless and upright man. Not a perfect man, not a sinless man, but a man who could not at least be indicted specifically for disobedience or, uh, you know, that they could really say, well, God is doing this to you because you did this. Nobody could find those equivalencies, those lines of relationship between his suffering as greatly as he did and anything that he had done. And so we've had tremendous statements from Job, and we've been able to praise him, suffering as he was, for things that, let me just remind you, Job 121, a tremendous statement. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or 1315, although he might slay me, yet will I hope in him. Or last time, Job 19.25, I know, I have no trouble whatsoever knowing that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the last upon the earth and in my flesh I shall see God. What a statement! If Job said nothing else but those three wonderful statements, he would be a godly man to be respected. And he has had these peak hours of trusting God right well, but he was only a man in the end of things. And I have not spoken too much yet of the way in which there was sort of an accumulating load of, let's call it peevishness or exhaustion Or spiritual resentment building up in Job as he was constantly being criticized unjustly and having to defend himself and having to question, God, what are you doing? Would you please let me come into your courtroom and state my case? I know you would accept it if you would only hear it. And here in Job, the blameless and upright man, he was a sinner. Of course he was. And there was what you might call a bit of rust building up on the iron constitution of his faith as he was objecting, as he was getting worn out, and he was getting grumpy and irritable. Isn't it possible that suffering makes you grumpy and irritable? Congratulations if you're the person who says, no, that never does that to me. Job's problem was not suffering divine punishment, as the three friends said, for particular sins. However, suffering itself over a lengthy time gradually built up resentment and petty complaints and negative thinking in his mind. And this is largely what Elihu comes along to address. It takes Elihu a while to get warmed up. I would invite you, by the way, to have your Bible open because I'm going to be uh, touching down on a number of things I didn't read. So you might want to just be able to survey chapters 32 to 33. But uh, Elihu sees Job not as a sinner who's being punished by God, but as a weak but yet faithful man who has gotten worn out by the way he's been treated. And it has resulted in just an edge in his character and his attitude of resentment even towards God. So Elihu's if we could try to summarize six chapters for you, that's not easy to do, is to say, Job, you need to refocus yourself on the all-sovereign God and consciously in your prayer life, in your attitude, lift away this petty, self-justifying defensiveness that is building up. And I would say that's the word that's here for any of us today as we suffer. First of all, as a point here, I would introduce Elihu to you. I want to call him the angry young man who correctly defended God. You know, we have people today who have talked about a a visible movement among evangelical Christians turning towards the Reformed camp The God, the big God camp of Calvinism, and and people talk today about young people in their 20s and seminary students who are young, restless, and reformed. Well, I think Elihu belongs to the young, restless, and reformed. He says, it says several times, he was angry. He had been standing as a bystander. If you look at chapter 32, 1 through 5, you see the introduction to him. He had been standing by... His genealogy is given here of who his parents were and so on. And it says in 32:2, he became angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. That's pretty much the thrust or the theme of what's going on in these chapters as Elihu speaks in six chapters. It says he burned with anger. The older men had spoken. He expected the older men to give wisdom, and he heard instead a narrow, crabby religion that simply judged Job and and heaped punishment on him, but did not get to the heart of the issue. Now, if you read chapters 32 and 33, which I'm really not going to touch, you would find a man that initially you might not like too much. He sounds a little bit pompous. All right, I've listened to you guys, now it's my turn. And he seems rather full of himself at first, and it takes him a while to really get into the subject. But he says that he is desirous of speaking from the breath of the Almighty in 32.8. Not just logic, not just human judgment. He says, I am desirous of being able to speak by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, maybe you think that's very, very... Presumptuous. You have to judge by what it is he says as he goes on. In 33, 14 and following, he has a passage there where he says, God has been speaking in all of this. Job, you think God is silent. He's not. He's been speaking. But you may not be listening. I'm going to state uh, something you might think is odd, but I'll say it this way. Maybe it'll help us understand. I believe Elihu is saying Job, when did you stop being a Calvinist? Now, most of you know that so-called Calvinism, not an altogether helpful term that we don't use a lot because it's not always well understood. People think we're talking about something that was invented by John Calvin in the 16th century, when in fact we're talking about what is better called the Reformed faith, which is nothing but the outlook of the Bible. The outlook that says if you're thinking about God and you're inclined to think little of him or more of him, you'll always be right if you think more of him. Because God is always greater than any thought that you could have. He is immense. He is independent. He is self-existent. He does not await your directions or your permission For what he can do. He is far greater than you ever credit him to be. That's what so called Calvinism is, or we like to say the Reformed faith. God exists without our aid, our influence. He exists for his glory, not according to human dictates. And God and God alone should be the central and primary focus of our considerations, not man. And man's measurement or man's ideas of things. So Elihu here is indignant for glory that he says is due to God, for his majestic sovereignty. He is ready to sing Paul's theme from Romans eleven thirty six, that wonderful concluding statement that wraps up the whole doctrinal core of Romans when Paul said, For from him and through him and unto him be all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Elihu could have written that in the Old Testament because that's what he was arguing for. He was defending God. He was saying, Job, the whole discussion you've been engaged in has lost its balance. It's not about a defense for you. It's not about your rights. We're talking about God's rights. God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's perfection. Job, when did you stop being a biblical Calvinist in the way that you honored God? No one, Elihu said, can demand anything from him. He's the almighty king of the universe who does not have to explain himself to a puny man. So the central thesis of this book, which I've repeated before this, is that God... Is not punishing Job because of particular obvious sins, and yet now in this experience of his great suffering, as a consequence of suffering, Job is getting rather cranky and having a little bit of a problem in his worship of God. Elihu asks him, Job, is your faith God centered or me centered? You seem too concerned to justify yourself and God is becoming the object of your small-minded criticism. Job 34.5, Elihu argues, Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. That's the same thing as saying, I'm right and God's wrong. Wow, watch it, Job, you're getting on thin ice. In 34.10, Elihu's challenges, Far be it from God that he should do any wickedness, or that he should do any wrong. You see, Job needed to be shaken loose of his self-centeredness. And this is one of the effects of suffering. It makes us self-centered. The walls press in, pain presses in, limitation of our activities and our hopes press in. And all of a sudden it's like we live in a tiny closet or something and, and we can't see beyond the possibilities of our own weakness and our own difficulty. And we want to cry out and say, God, wait a minute, don't I, don't I have rights? Why is this happening? I've been pretty good for the most part. Why are you letting this happen to me? And we're thinking of ourselves and defending ourselves rather than thinking of the greatness of God who alone is sovereign. And we dare not question him in the long run, even though, of course, our, our pain makes us cry out. God could withdraw our very life from us and he would not be doing us wrong. And he would not owe us an explanation. And this is the kind of thing Elihu began to argue and he paused at the end of verse 35, especially there seems to be a pause here. Job or his friends might have jumped up and said, all right, you young upstart, now let me talk. But nobody talked. Nobody jumped in. They listened. So secondly, I ask you to look to the text that I began reading in chapter 36. And the first half of it, at least, I read. As Elihu brings the somewhat shocking summary through these verses to say, God has every right to allow godly people to suffer temporarily for purposes he does not presently explain. Some commentators have said that the first half of Job 36 contains some of the best theology or doctrine of the entire book. It is saying very clearly, God permits our suffering. He's sovereign over it. He knows what's happening. He knows when we're put down, when we're writhing in pain, when we're being denied justice. He's aware of it, and he's master over it. And even negative, painful experiences can teach us about God and lead us to new experiences of him. Job 36.5 asserts that God, who is sovereign, is also mighty and full of understanding. So he has all the wisdom needed. He has all the power needed to make suffering stop if he chose it to. But he knows what he's doing. And if he lets us suffer for a period of time, he's still God, no less so whatsoever. In verses 36 and 37 here, he said, Elihu says, God does not favor the wicked, as Job had implied he did. His watchful eye is on the afflicted person. He does not withdraw his eye from the sufferer. That's, by the way, that's chapter 35, I think, not 36. But he says, yes, the believer can suffer for a time, and the Lord knows it. Think, for example, at 36.8, I can see in my mind that perhaps we don't know whether Elihu had any understanding of, of Joseph and his experience in Genesis, but at 36.7 through 9 or more there, you could picture Joseph in Egypt and his story being treated with tremendous injustice by his own brothers and made a prisoner, a slave, put in a prison, and even a fellow prisoner who says, oh, I will remember you when I get out, forgot all about him. And Joseph languished and languished in prison, thinking, why, why is this happening to me? Well, we know that God had his time and had his purpose and brought Joseph out of prison to a position of power where he did much good for many people. And then at the end, we could say, well, there was a purpose in this. God couldn't have put Joseph in the same position of power, apparently, any other way. And it says there in 36.8, God might, or 36.7, he might bring that person to be honored like a king. For Joseph, he did. But on the other hand, he might let that person remain in fetters or chains. Whatever God did, does there is his purpose. And he knows, yes, he knows. Here's a godly person suffering. But he has a purpose, and we need to trust him for that. He has compassion. His eye does not leave the suffering one. Several years ago, I know when popular Christian author John Piper himself went through an experience of cancer, he wrote a short piece. It became a little booklet, I think. It started as an article and then was a booklet with a startling title. John Piper's booklet was, Don't Waste Your Cancer. I thought, what could this be about? And here read Piper saying, God put me and has put many others, of course, who've suffered cancer into a position of suffering and The inclination is to say, oh, this is a wasted time in my life. This is a a terrible time. I just have to get past this and get out of it and pray, God, please deliver me from this. Piper said, don't waste your cancer. It's a spiritual opportunity to meet with God and to trust God in a new way than you ever have before. You will learn lessons in your disease and its resultant pains that you can't learn any other way. And in your suffering, Piper was saying, you can discover meaning that is grand and high and deep that cannot be taught to you any other manner. C.S. Lewis said much the same thing when he wrote to say God whispers in our joys, but he shouts to us by his megaphone in our pains. He's got our attention. And he's going to tell us some things and teach us some things if we're willing to listen. I especially appreciate the NIV translation of 36.16, which I think is more obscure in the other modern translation. It says there, The Lord is wooing you from the jaws of distress into a spacious place, free from restrictions to the comfort of a table laden with his choice food. God is ready to work in your suffering, doing things through your suffering. And so thirdly, we come, and I state this third point from Elihu this way, that we must measure our small puddle of suffering beside the ocean of God's sovereignty. We must learn to measure the puddle of our suffering beside the ocean of God's sovereignty. Job 36.22, the young man Elihu starts extolling the greatness of God in nature and does that right on through much of chapter 37. He speaks about the greatness of God beyond understanding, he says in 3626. How great is God beyond our understanding? The number of his years is past finding out. And he goes through descriptions of all the ways that weather works and this storm and you would think this guy was a pretty advanced meteorologist, actually, as he talks about condensation and the waters being gathered into the clouds and the clouds emptying out and and God governing all this. Verse thirty-two of chapter thirty-six, he fills his hands with lightning and commands it to strike his mark. And he goes on and on. Listen, thirty-seven two, to the roar of his voice to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He's picturing the tremendous greatness of God that we just get through the raw data of the creation around us. If you were sitting in your car in East Lampeter Township with 12 inches of water flowing past the front of it, because you dare not go through, you might have said, what is going on? What power is at work here? Well, it was the wondrous works of God, Elihu would say. And there's a beautiful passage, perhaps poetically one of the most beautiful passages in the whole book, are the last few verses of chapter 37. Out of the north God comes in golden splendor, in awesome majesty, the almighty beyond our reach, exalted in power, in justice and great righteousness. He says, do you catch this? Are you so insulated in your air-conditioned house with all the windows shut that you ignore what's going on out there in that fantastic world of God and the power that He has? Do you fear this God? Not the fear of terror, the fear of respect and worship and awe. Do you bow before Him? Elihu is telling us, God's Word challenges us to refocus our minds on the power of God as an antidote to suffering. Put it alongside. Yes, of course, if you have cancer, if you've just gone through a sharp experience of grief and loss or many other things, I do not wish to demean you in calling that a puddle of suffering. But if you are aware of the ocean that is God, It is a puddle, and it puts things in a tremendously different perspective. Worshiping God in his measureless greatness drives away that narrow sense of, Oh, woe is me. This should not be happening to me after all the good I have done for God. After how faithful I have been to God, Job was getting into that mindset a little bit. God, you really do owe me an explanation at the end of the day here. Elihu was saying, no, he does not. Sufferer, if you trust in God through Jesus Christ as your Savior, naturally you're going to cry tears over your puddle. Whatever God has brought into your life, hard things. A family we're aware of with mid-thirties, wife and mother taken from them and five children for a Christian husband to raise. Wow. Maybe you say God owes somebody an explanation. No, he does not. And as we look at these real puddles in our life and the real pain that they involve, we must stand back far enough to know that the ultimately all-sovereign, all-loving, all-merciful God can eventually redeem the worst of them, the most painful of them. He's the God of puddles because he's the God of oceans, ladies and gentlemen. And he who commands the ocean wave commands our suffering too. Very wise woman is named Margaret Clarkson. We have several of Margaret Clarkson's hymns in our hymn book. She was a wonderful. Writer, devotional writer. Here's something she wrote once. The sovereignty of God is the impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. She said, circumstances surrounding our lives are not accidents, none of them. They may involve the work of evil, as we see in Job's life, she said, yet all evil is held firmly in the hand of the true sovereign God, It cannot touch his children unless he permits it. So God is not only the Lord of human history, he's the Lord of the personal history of every member of his redeemed family. The God who is sovereign over typhoons and blizzards of snow, over destructive tornado winds, is the God of every painful stroke that comes into a human life. And you might, like Job or like those who judged Job especially, be ready to say, Well, this really hard thing has come to me or has come into my family or my friend. It must be punishment for some sin. That was, of course, the big thing in Job. Job's got to be punished here. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why we keep going back to the cross because God in Jesus Christ brought the punishment for all our sin down upon the head of his only beloved son. You cannot conclude, therefore, that whatever makes you hurt in your life is God's punishment. Because if you conclude that, you are saying your heavenly father is practicing what attorneys call double jeopardy, punishment for the same thing twice That's against the law in this land. God, who punished his son for the sins of all, does not wreak punishment again on you and I for what Jesus Christ has already paid for in full. Do you see that? He's not punishing you. Well, this... Young spokesman Elihu has brought us right to the doorstep of chapter 38, which we'll deal with next time. I would just ask you to maybe glance at your Bible and see how Elihu stops talking in 3724. And what are the very next words? Words, really, that we've anticipated through this whole book. Then the Lord answered Job, Out of the storm. The great God of oceans. The ruler of earthquakes. The creator of every galaxy. Is going to have his say. And when he speaks. It will be the last word. That we need to hear. We'll listen for it next time. Father. I thank you for a brash young man who ventured into an arena where the wise old man had not done very well. Thank you for Job. Even in his exhausted, weary, bruised state of having to defend himself and get his thinking maybe a little confused because of it, because he's so much like us. Father, Father, if the rust of distrusting you has accumulated on the iron of our faith, will you shake it loose, sand it off, as Elihu helped Job to do, that we might refocus on you, the sovereign God, and refocus on the cross of Jesus, where you did great wonders for us. We ask you in his name. Amen.